when he got up here and he prayed and said he wanted to thank God for my willingness to be here. Actually, uh, when Caleb called me on Monday, he uh, asked me if I would preach, if I had something. And I was actually kind of excited because God knows how to, I guess, push me in a way to where I can preach. And apparently it has something to do with the Dominican again. But when I went there a couple weeks ago, there was only four of us. And every time you go, they want someone to preach. And I was one of the two that had to preach. And, well, we all had to preach, but I went through and prepared. And you only have to prepare about half of whatever you need or half of the time you need there because you have a translator. And when I was done, I was like, man, this is really, really good. I would really like to preach this back home. And I want to I want to expound on this more. I've already done all the, the groundwork, so when he called, I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I got something. And about a half hour later, I, after I'd already agreed to it, I started going through it in my head, and I said, well, I guess I'm going to have to start over. So this is completely different, but it got me to say yes. So uh, let's start off in uh, Romans 8. We're going to start off in 14 there. And it says, For as many are as led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified with Him together. And today I really want to look at that word, heir. You know, my whole life, everybody who's been a Christian has heard the word child of God, sons and daughters of God. And to me, that means something different. Um, I mean, looking into it, there's hundreds of verses saying, calling us children of God. First John, or, uh, John 1 John 1.12, But as many as received Him, to Him He gave power to be the sons of God to them that believed on His name. Now, that gives me a sense of protection, a sense of comfort. Growing up, you know, we base our uh, our comfort level, our our status in life, off of our parents. You know, my my dad was a really good wrestler in high school and college. So, if someone, if I felt threatened by someone or saw someone else's dad that was bigger that was going to get me get on me about something, I'd think and probably said several times what many kids say, well, my dad could beat up your dad. And that's, that's, that gave me a sense of protection. It really did, because I never had to worry about, well, if I was in the wrong, then my dad would beat up me. But it's a little different. I never had to worry about or fear other people because my dad was protecting me. And that's the same way I've always approached the, those verses. God is someone who's going to provide for me. He's going to protect me because I'm his son. But I never really looked at the word heir. And if you look at the definition of the word child, it's very different too. There's three main definitions. One is a young man or a young human being below the age of puberty or legal age of majority, a son or daughter of any age, or three, an immature or irresponsible person. And that definitely fits me 
you know, I'm definitely not as mature as I could be in my Christianity, but that's how I looked at that definition. And that's how I look whenever someone else says my son or daughter. I think of, you know, that's who you're taking care of. I never thought, well, that's who's going to inherit your wealth or life's work. And the word heir has a different ring to it to me and a completely different definition. There's two main definitions to the word heir. A person legally entitled to the property or rank of another person on that person's death. Or two, a person inheriting and continuing the legacy of a predecessor. Now, I have to look back and think, everybody since Adam has had a mother and father, but not everybody since Adam has had an inheritance. And in my own life, you know, the, my parents had at one point in time decided to set up a trust where everything was just going to be put into our names when they pass, or everything was already in our names. And they explained that the oldest got more than everybody else, firstborn, and then everybody else got to split. So setting down, it's like, okay, there's 12 of us. The, rest, the, the smaller portion is split 11 ways. I'm not getting much. But, so I never, ever thought about my inheritance, or very rarely, or maybe the lack of it. So I'm going to rattle off a few things of what our inheritance in Jesus Christ is. And actually, when I was preparing for this, I was really worried like I usually am. I'm not going to have enough. I'm going to get through this and only could be done 15 minutes and everybody have to go home feeling a little cheated. But I got back and I started preparing and I came out and told Laura, I said, I'd got several pages of notes and I'm not halfway there yet. So I had to slow down. It's not supposed to be a series. It's supposed to be a sermon. I couldn't figure out where to stop it. That's why if I stopped in the beginning, it's going to be a completely different message. And so we're going to try and get through this. But in Psalms 5010, it says, for every beast of the forest is mine and the cattle upon a thousand hills. Now that is a physical blessing. It has nothing to do with the spiritual blessings, that is part of our inheritance. I'm going to read through several of these. You don't have to turn to them. I'm going to go through them pretty quick. Deuteronomy 10.14 Behold, the heaven and heaven of heavens is the Lord thy God. So the earth, earth also is thine with all that is therein. Psalms 104.24 O Lord, how manifold are thy works. In wisdom hast thou made them all. The earth is full of thy riches. Psalms 95, 4. In his hands are the deep places of the earth. The strength of the hills is his also. Haggai 2, 8. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. Now I'm going to stop right there. This is where I started to get to and was worried that it was going to come out to a completely different message. But this is not a prosperity message. Um... I'm not up here saying, you know, you give God $100 and He'll give you 1000 or $10, He'll give you 100 I would never hold God to that little of amount. But as going through this, there's two messages that I've really grown to dislike in today's preaching. One is the prosperity message, and the other is messages against prosperity. Because no matter what side of the aisle you're on, the person next to you either doesn't have a right relationship with God because they have nothing, or it doesn't seem like they have anything, or, and if that person was right with God, they wouldn't just have so much money. They'd spend it on people around outside. But neither one of those statements is a true statement. 
neither one of those statements is a true statement. It depends on the person. It's the love of money that's, that's the root of all evil, not money. It's the love of possessions, period. But you go to the Bible. On one hand, you have Lazarus at the gate. He had nothing. The only thing you could say he had is that he had nothing. On the other hand, one of the richest people to ever live was a man of God. And he's in the Bible. And most people would think Solomon. True, he was known for his wealth. He had more than any of us could ever imagine. But I was doing research on it. And I was doing research on on Solomon. And his dad, David, may have been, as far as percentage of wealth owned, may have been more wealthy than him. At the time that David was alive, according to Google, there was around 10,000 tons of gold that had been mined, period. David owned 5,000 tons of it. He donated 224,000 pounds of gold, 525,000 pounds of silver, and all kinds of other precious metals, just for the decoration of the temple. It had nothing to do with the construction of the temple. Now, if you would think of that legalistically, you go, okay, well, he must have had... Today, nowadays, if he took just the gold and silver, it's around a billion dollars. So, legalistically, he should have only had about $10 billion, because that's 10% of his wealth. But it wasn't even a fraction. And it didn't make him any less of a Christian because of it. They said that he had owned, he had amassed half of all wealth, period, on the planet. Now today, I don't think God would have blessed him any different. And if he had half of all wealth on the planet, he would have $125 trillion. And if he had a thousandth of that, you'd be the richest person in the world. Now his dad, if he took his equivalent wealth, it would be $2.2 trillion today. There's a little bit of a difference because God continued to bless him. David isn't known for his wealth. He's known for his heart. His heart and where he kept his treasure was why he continued to have wealth. Didn't make him any less or more of a Christian. Both David and Lazarus left this earth just as happily to leave everything behind. Neither one of them looked back and asked for a little more time with what they had. You know, it doesn't mean if you don't have a lot, you're not a Christian. It doesn't mean if you, have a, uh, if you do, you're not a Christian. God has people in every area of life to reach people in every area of life. But you don't have to stay in one area of life, otherwise you're not growing. In a summary of a, a 1 Corinthians 9, 19, Paul talks about you know, to the Jews, he was a Jew. To the weak, he was weak. You know, God puts us in places where we can relate to other people. God puts us in, in places because I'm not going to take advice from someone who I don't think is, has made the mistakes I've made because they can't understand. And that's why the Bible is full of people who made mistakes. So let's go back into the Bible. Let's turn to Daniel 2.20. Go through a few verses that still have everything to do with uh, blessings, but not physical blessings. 
Daniel says, Blessed, or Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever, for wisdom and might are his. You don't have to turn to this one, but Psalm says, The day is thine, and the night is thine also. Thou hast prepared the light and the sun. Now, some people would say, just because the Bible says that it is his, doesn't mean we have a right to it. The Bible also says, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I would argue that he's avenging us. It's still being used for our purpose. But if you put that aside... Say you got a point. Let's just go to the parts of the Bible where God uses these non-physical blessings for our good. Let's turn to Joshua ten eleven. We're going to read through thirteen. Then it came to pass, as they fled from before Israel, and were in the going down of Beth Haran that the heaven upon them unto Ezekah, and or, or that the stones, uh, that the Lord cast down great stones from heaven upon them unto Ezekah, and they died. And they which were more, or that they were more that died with the hailstones than whom the children of Israel slew. Then spake Joshua to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still upon Gibeon, and thou moon in the valley upon Agilon. And the sun stood still. The moon stayed until the people had avenged themselves upon their enemies. Is not this written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven, and hasted not to go down about the whole day. It does not say that he got down on his knees and said, God, can I use the sun? The son was his. He was a man of God. He was, that was part of his inheritance. He both controlled the sun and the moon, the sign of light and the sign of darkness. And he said, stand still. It was a command, not a request. Just like anyone who's ever worked with anyone else, if you give them a task to do, or they have a task to do, and they have all the tools set out before them, it would get pretty frustrating if they kept coming and saying, can I use the hammer to drive these nails? It is our right, it is our birthright, to use the tools God has set before us. In Exodus, it talks about God using a darkness people could feel. Let's turn to uh, to Acts 13 real quick. We're going to read 11. And to set up a premise of this, when Paul had got to this area, there was, he was trying to, uh, to speak to the man in charge, and there was a man there named Bar-Jesus, and he was preventing them in every way he could, trying to undermine them. And in 11 there, it says, And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon thee, And thou shalt be blind, not seeing the sun for a season. And immediately there fell on him a mist and a darkness, and he went about seeking someone to lead him by the hand. It doesn't say that his eyes were ruined. It says that he commanded it in a darkness, which to me, 
if I think of darkness, it thinks of something bad. But every element, every gift, or nearly every one that I can think of, can be used in our favor. God did not create something bad when he created darkness. He created a contrast. Now that darkness, everywhere I can think of, that darkness is always used to prevent or teach a lesson to someone. But it's still used for God's people. And I've already read about wisdom and and wealth. God gives all of these things freely to his, His children, His heirs. We are His heirs to all that we need to do to glorify God. So, this may not be a, a prosperity message in the traditional sense of a prosperity message, but it is an extremely prosperous and prosperity-based message because how can we not be prosperous if we are heirs to God's kingdom? Now, once we got through that premise, we all know that we have treasure in heaven stored up that is uncorruptible, and we'll receive it when we go to God. But I'm here to talk about the treasure we have here. God didn't say he had a cattle on a thousand hills for us when we get to heaven because they won't be there when we get to heaven. So I started thinking about this. If we have a right, if we are heirs to all of these blessings, where are all those blessings? And I started thinking about stipulations in wills. You know, I don't know of, of anyone who has any large amount of wealth who doesn't stipulate reasons or something in, in their will for who can receive it and how they can receive it. So three that come to mind is, one, they can't receive their wealth until they're 18 or 21, until they've matured. Two, they can't receive their wealth until they've accomplished something, received a a degree in in finance or a degree in something. Or three, they don't think their heirs will ever be able to handle that type of wealth, so they put someone else in charge of it, and they just give them what they need for their life. And they never gain access to all of their parents' wealth. So before we even get to the stipulations... If we don't know it's ours, we don't know to ask for it. In, uh, in 1 Corinthians, let's go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians 3, 2, instead of reading that off. my baby screaming in the back. Paul says there, I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto you were not able to bear it, neither yet are you now able. Now, it doesn't seem like it's in context, but do you know how he knew they were not mature enough to receive meat, to digest meat? If you look down at Four says, For one saith, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are ye not carnal? They didn't know who their father was. If you don't know who your father is, then you can't receive his inheritance. 
they, if Caleb or anyone got up here and spoke, and I got sick and said, I'm going to be healed because I heard Caleb speak on healing. Or I'm claiming a new van for my shop. I'm going to get it because I heard Caleb talk about claiming. I'm never going to receive that because Caleb can only show, or any preacher can only show, the adoption papers. He cannot make you or me an heir. In the U.S. alone, there's $58 billion in unclaimed assets. I don't think for a second there are millions of people out there I don't really need my cut of $58 billion. They just don't know that it's theirs. And as Christians, we're the exact same way. As Christians, you know, I'll get into a hurry at work, smash a finger, cut something, and sometimes, man, I get put a bandage on and get back to work. Why didn't I ask for that cut hand or that? Now, I do it later when I start to think about it. But if it was, if it was deep enough, and that's a shame to me because if it was deep enough, my first reaction would be the same reaction I'd have when it's something serious. When it's something serious, it's my first reaction because that's, that's the only option I got. I know, okay, this is bad. But these little things that we struggle through constantly because we, we can take care of it. Now, I've, you know, I, I claim things, I large things, like the van I was talking about. And that is not because I believe there's a really nice car dealer out there that's just going to give me a car. The car, uh, the van we have over there, it started breaking down, and we took it to the mechanic, and the mechanic said, well, you either put a new motor in it or get a new vehicle. Well, the motor is worth more than the vehicle. So I prayed, and I told Laura, I said, that van will last until we get a new van, or it'll last forever, because God will provide for it. And that was what I claimed. And since then, every single time we get into the vehicle, something else breaks. But that was over a year ago, and the motor, the knocking in the motor has stopped and has lasted. And I believe that God will bless me because that's mine to ask for. And He will bless me with that. So let's look at some of these clauses in the will. God says, okay, here's everything you have. You don't have to read very far. And you can, these verses I picked, I picked seven, I think. There's hundreds that talk about what is yours and what he's willing to give you. But when God says, okay, I'm going to give it to you, but you're not ready for it yet. One of the biggest fears that people have, leaving money to their children, is that it'll be wasted. And if God gave me all of this stuff, I would have no idea how to handle it at this stage in my life. He gives me exactly what I can handle and more. But you can read in the Bible this exact statement. Let's go to Ecclesiastes 2.18. 
see an example of this with Solomon. He says, Yea, I hated all my labor which I had taken under the sun, because I should leave it to a man that shall be after me. And who knoweth whether he be wise man or a fool? Yet shall he have rule over all my labor, wherein I have labored, and wherein I have shewed myself wise under the sun. This is also vanity. Therefore I went about to cause my heart to despair of all the labor which I took under the sun. For there is a man whose labor is in wisdom, and in knowledge, and in equity, yet to a man that hath not labored shall he leave it for his portion, for this also is vanity and great evil." Solomon wrote Proverbs first. He wanted his children to understand. I don't know how long it would take. In Hebrew, in English, you can read through Proverbs in about an hour. And they had 40 years. Well, I don't know exactly when he wrote it. Maybe 30 years. He wrote Song of Solomon first. But they had a lot of time, a lot more than an hour, to understand that. And when they didn't understand that, probably because they followed his lifestyle instead of his words, then he wrote Ecclesiastes, talking about how bad it was. didn't matter how much he got, he knew he was going to leave it to an heir that didn't know how to deal with it. And his his fears were completely realized. Very, very shortly after his death, his son lost nearly every single thing that he had built. Because he couldn't tell the difference. He was not mature enough to tell the difference between good counsel and bad counsel. I never claimed to be wiser than Solomon, but I have something he didn't have, and it's hindsight. And if he had written a clause saying, like in a lot of wills, you're not in charge, you can't make decisions until you have matured, until you have learned from these counselors that I taught, you're not in charge. Let's turn to Galatians 4, 1 through 3 and get an example of God's version of these clauses. It says, Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all, but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the father. Even so, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. If you look there at number one, it says, He is a servant, and it doesn't say period, it's a comma, though he is Lord of all. It doesn't make him any less of an heir, any less of Lord of all. It just makes him not ready to make those decisions. He is Lord of the people he is learning from. Probably a servant sermon in there somewhere. But God clearly has said here, and said out throughout the Bible, come to me as a child. He does not say to stay that way. Because as a child, you will never be more than a servant. You have to learn and mature to become an heir. As a child, God will feed you. He'll provide for you. But he only gives you responsibilities as you mature. 
there are people, very, very obviously, that come as a child. They'll live their whole life as a child. And they'll die as a child. It does not mean they didn't go to heaven. But it does mean that they lived as a servant their whole life instead of reigning as an heir. And like I said, this is not about all these physical possessions. I'm not going to talk down any of the physical possessions. I will gladly accept them when they come. But that's not all I want. That's not all I'm claiming. That's not what I'm claiming for my children. Um, If you actually look in, well, I'll just read it off. Ephesians 3.20. So now I, unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. That is what I'm claiming. That is what I want for my children. That is what I want for, for this church. We have the right to healing. We have the right to not live worrying every single week for our whole life if we're going to have enough money at the end of the week to feed our children. Now, that's a great reassurance to know that God's going to feed our children. No matter how bad it gets, I'm not going to be left without anything because even as a child, I have that right. People have thought about, okay, I've been a Christian for X amount of years, and I haven't gotten these blessings. I haven't received this. I don't seem to be getting all these things that the Bible says I can have. But if you look at maturity, the same way you would look at mastery. In a physical sense, if you want to become a master carpenter, you have to have between eight and 10,000 hours of experience. If you're going to get a degree to be a master carpenter, they require 140 hours a year of class and 2,000 hours a year of practice. Now, I like to do the little courses where you read through the Bible in a year. Because I, I have to have a goal. You know, at the end of the day, if, if I have slacked and not heard anything, you know, I, oh, I've got to get this. I can't be behind. I'm motivated by that. But it takes about 71 hours of work, or of reading, to read through the Bible in a year. Well, period. But 11 to 12 minutes a day. So, how long is it going to take you to get, or me to get, to where I have mastered my knowledge of the Bible with 71 hours In 136 years, you will have reached just the natural standard for mastering the Bible if you read through it once a year. Let's add in, you go to church, two hours on on Sunday, two hours on Wednesday, add an extra four hours a week. 36 years, you will have had the physical or the natural standard of mastering the Bible. But you actually wouldn't, because how many people know that something you knew 10 years ago, you don't know today? That's why it's a three to four year degree of 2,000 hours a year, 2,140 hours a year, 
to become a master carpenter because if you're not not just learning it with your 140 hours, but you're practicing it for 2,000 hours. I can learn anything pretty quick. I have a lot more knowledge about the Bible, and I have a lot more knowledge physically that I've learned from watching YouTube. Someone comes in with something I've never done, Google it, I learn it, and then when I get into it, I really learn it. That's when the practice or the, the knowledge has to be practiced. There's only 8,760 hours in a year. Now, there's, there, there's people out there who know the Bible front to back and they'll never be mature Christians. There's people who learn the Bible better than I do just so they can try to prove me wrong. Knowledge doesn't attribute maturity. That's where the practice has to come into play. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to work this down and end on a few things here. When we are children, we must eat to grow. We must eat to strengthen and to reach maturity. When we are adults... If we stop eating, we still die. We have to eat and continue to feed on the Word of God and practice the Word of God or we will lose what we have. This is our inheritance. It says in, in Deuteronomy 8, it says, hey, God says, I'm giving this all to you. And they had to work for it too. They had to work a lot harder for their inheritance than we have to work for ours. But he said, I'm going to give everything to you. Go in and live in peace. But when you are at peace, when you have everything you could ever dream of, do not forget to feed on the Word of God. Do not forget to remember what it took to get here. The reason why God makes it so difficult to receive our inheritance because anybody who's got it will know it's a whole lot more difficult to keep it. Just like there's things 10 years ago that I knew how to do that I still have the knowledge of today, I don't have the practice of it. This is something we have to practice. We have very few opportunities throughout the day. Most of us aren't in a mission field where every single day we wake up and we get to practice what we preach. We get to practice what we learn. We only have small opportunities. And we have to use those. I'm not saying it's going to take you 10,000 hours. You can use your time wisely. I can use my time wisely. And you can probably get it done a lot quicker. But it's not about getting through it quickly. It's getting through it correctly. I'm going to going to end on that and uh, try not to go into another area there so we're going we're gonna to end on that all right father I thank you for this for this word I thank you for your promises I thank you that you've not only promised us the blessings the inheritance of wealth the inheritance of peace of comfort
of all physical and spiritual things that you have have provided for us, but you've also promised us the wisdom to maintain those things. I pray that you will put in our heart to maintain those things. You will put in our heart to mature and to feed on your word and to claim our inheritance all the way around. To show ourselves faithful and to be an example to all those around and be ready to answer whenever they ask of the peace that is in us. Thank you for all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.